0: Well, even though I've been gone for six weeks, I've been trying to keep up with this sermon series on the podcasts online, and I've enjoyed those messages. Uh, There is a lot of material in this letter to the churches at Galatia. There is a lot. Uh, It's amazing how rich uh, this scripture is. And of course, you know, we've been talking about freedom it's all about freedom, isn't it, you know, in America? Uh, we're closing in on, the, on July 4th. It's only about uh, three weeks away or so. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be hearing a lot about the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. We're going to see them, you know, on the advertisements on television about the freedom to buy a new car and the freedom to uh, have new floor covering in your, in your house or the freedom to buy furniture. <laughs> Oh, America. You know, walk around in any grocery store. Think about freedom of choice. Just walk around in every grocery store. When I was a kid, you know, there were maybe 10 kinds of cereal. <laughs> There's a whole aisle devoted to cereal now. And everything is available in either uh, gluten free or fat free or double fat or whatever. You know, it's all these kinds of choices that we now have as we uh, do our shopping. And how about that new soda machine that is in some of the fast food restaurants? You know, it's probably been around for about five years. The one that has the touch screen and you can touch what you want and you can mix your drinks. Do you ever get behind a kid that can't make up their mind? (laughs) Or, Or they like to mix their drinks. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, my. America. You know, some people, that's what freedom is. There are so many people today who are more concerned about their quote-unquote personal freedoms instead of ever thinking about what we're freed from and what we're freed for, instead of considering the privileges and the opportunities our freedom provides for us. For those people, it's all about what's in it for me. What's in it for me? And in my humble opinion, there are too many people in this country who believe that being free means that they can do and say whatever they like. All of these examples are not true freedom. They're not biblical freedom in any sense of the word. And, you know, I think we would do well if we would remember this bias, this really kind of a cultural bias that we have when we study Scripture. This perspective of entitlement that is a part of our culture can creep into how we read and interpret Scripture, and that can be dangerous. You know, while the politically correct don't want to admit it, our country was founded on many biblical ideals and principles. We have forgotten that. We would do well to relearn. We would do well to reapply those truths and those ideals, especially to our biblical, understanding, uh, of our biblical understanding of freedom, to our national understanding of freedom. So remember that as we explore what Paul had to say today. The sermon series has been about true freedom in the biblical sense of the word, and Paul, Paul has really taken the Galatian churches to task for getting off the mark, you know, they had been given the greatest gift that they have po- could possibly ever be given. Freedom in Christ. And they had allowed themselves to be swayed. Swayed big time. In fact, Paul even accuses them of turning to a different gospel. You know, when he needed to, which was often. Paul could be very direct. He could even be acerbic. He didn't mince words. And he even gets a little sarcastic in our passage for today. But more about that later. So, you remember this magazine? It's still around. Maybe some of you subscribe to it. I don't know. I see it when I'm in the checkout line at the grocery store. Did you ever wonder why it's not just called Homes and Gardens? It's called Better homes and gardens. Think about that just for a minute. I'm going to tuck that away. We'll talk about that in just a second. As we move into our text for today, the fifth chapter of Galatians, Paul states the obvious, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Thank you, Captain Obvious. (laughs) It is for freedom that you have been set free. It's one of those duh statements, right? I'm guessing that we would all agree with that. But, the Galatians had apparently forgotten it. They had missed the mark. They had either forgotten what freedom was, or more specifically, what freedom in Christ was. And this was the work of the Judaizers. The Judaizers, you will remember, were Jewish Christians who said that in order to be a Christian, you had to first convert to Judaism. And that included following the Mosaic Law, And for the males, it included being circumcised. Now, it would seem that the Judaizers had been rather effective in making their arguments, at least with the churches in Galatia. They had made an impact. They had convinced a number of the Galatians that this was the way to go. They had even swayed Peter off his beliefs, what he knew to be true. And what was their motivation? Why did they feel that this was necessary? Well, no one really knows for certain, but perhaps it was because that Jesus himself was a Jew, or perhaps they believed that salvation would only come to the Jews. And while salvation was presented first to the Jews, which was a big part of Jesus' mission on earth, salvation was to come to everybody, both Jew and Gentile, delivered through the Jews. In any case, the Judaizers said that the Gentiles had to join the Old Covenant if they wanted God's blessing and salvation. And Paul took immediate exception to this. In the rest of verse 1, he says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. They had already submitted to it, and they had been delivered from it, and now they were submitting to it again. The Old Testament law had always been viewed positively as a yoke. But Paul's turning that around. You see, the Jews believed that the yoke would be one that would would kind of harness them and control them effectively to follow God's way and his word. But Paul reverses this image, and he says it's going to be a burden. It's going to be a burden to you. Why? Why? because the law, with its many requirements, would weigh them down. It would rest heavily on their shoulders. Jesus said this about the Pharisees. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease their burdens. Paul continues in in verse 2. He says, look, this is Paul talking to you. He had done a lot already. You already know this if you've been here for the rest of the the, uh, part of the series that came before, that Paul does a lot to establish his authority. But he repeats it again here. He says, it's me. This is Paul. I'm the one who, who brought this message to you, the original message, the message in the first place. I'm not some snake oil salesman. You see, the Judaizers wanted it both ways. They liked the freedom that they experienced through Jesus, but they didn't want to give up the traditions of the Old Testament Mosaic law. After all, they had been raised in the law. That was all they knew all their lives. It had been a part of their experience, a part of their history. And maybe there was some of that thinking Uh, The the thinking along the lines, you know, if I had to follow the law, well, then these people should have to follow it too. There was the it's not fair card that was being played. But Paul points out the error of their thinking. He says in the remainder of verse 2, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you, no value to you if you're going to sign on for the Old Testament law and everything that it carries with it. Paul cautions his readers. He says, you can't pick and choose. Look at uh, verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Not just the parts that they wanted. Not just the parts that they found convenient. Basically, Paul is saying, you want the law? Then you get the law. You get the whole shlemiel. (laughs) The whole deal. The whole thing, the whole enchilada. <laughs> you know, last week we were at the visitor center at Grand Teton National Park. And as we entered, it was a, there was a naturalization ceremony that was being held there. There were a group of people that were becoming citizens of the United States in Grand Teton National Park. Can you think of a better place to have that naturalization ceremony? Suppose that someone wishes to become a legal citizen of a country. What do they do? Well, they study the laws, right? They study the regulations and the laws, uh, try to fulfill all of those regulations and so on that enable you to become naturalized. But you can't stop there. You know, that same person is bound to accept and follow all of the other rules and laws and regulations of the country as well, the whole deal. And when Paul said that those ascribing to this idea of legalism have to keep the whole law, he wasn't just referring to the Ten Commandments, folks. He was referring to everything, the dietary laws, the purification laws, the sacrificial laws, 613 of them are in the Old Testament. 613. And then there's the commentary on the law and the other regulations and so on that are added to it, the interpretation of the law. The law is not only burdensome, the law is a guarantee of failure. Why? Because nobody can follow it 100%. (laughs) It can't be done. You're going to fail sooner or later, and most likely, sooner. Paul says in verse 4, I kind of took things out of order a little bit because I want to show you how he's addressing the people that he's talking to. This part of the verse first, you who would be justified by the law. That's how he's referring to the people in Galatia. You who would be justified by the law. Isn't it ironic? that the Galatian believers were attempting to achieve and attain spiritual perfection. How? By keeping the law. They should have already known. It can't be done. It can't be done. They should have known better than anybody. But it's even worse than that. If you look at the rest of this verse, he says, uh, you are severed from Christ. If, that's, if this is what you want to do, you're severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. William Barclay, the commentator, writes to Paul, the way of grace and the way of the law are mutually exclusive. He made that very clear. Because they turned to the law, they automatically turned their backs on the way of Christ. It was as if Jesus had never even made his sacrifice. They had never been crucified. They had negated the best thing that had ever happened to them, grace through Christ. They had turned their back on Jesus. They had turned to the law, and by doing so, they were saying that Christ was not enough. Paul says, Christ is of no value to you. You know, we look at the Galatian churches and we can't believe that they would do this. That they would forsake the gift of grace offered to them through Jesus. And then then we realize that we do it all the time. It could be so simple, but we complicate it. Why do we do that? You know, do we think that it has to be complicated? Do we think there has to be more to it? Do we think that the, with a promise so good, there, there has to be strings attached? Do you, do you remember the, uh, the little booklet, The Four Spiritual Laws? Is there anybody here who remembers that? It, it came out in the 70s, I think. Bill Bright was the author of it, I believe. It came out through Campus Crusade. Um, and there, in that little booklet, there were two diagrams. And this is one of them, the Christ-directed life. And then there was the self-directed life. Now, in the Christ-directed life, you can see who's on the throne of your life, right? You see the cross up there? And on this, in the self-directed life, it's obvious who's on the throne of your life, too. You know, I thought of this little booklet when I was preparing this sermon. When self is on the throne, we have a tendency to grab the next shiny thing, whatever that is, that next shiny thing and, and hold on to it as tightly as we possibly can. And then it either wears out, breaks, disappoints us, or we get distracted by the next shiny thing, right? And I'm not just talking about shiny material things. Jesus gets dethroned by a wide array of distractions and less valuables than he. It could be career. It could be education. It could even be family. Yeah, it could even be family. Money, finances, relationships. That's a big one. Huge. The list goes on and on. And that's where this comes in. Why is it called Better Homes and Gardens? Well, it's called Better Homes and Gardens because they want to keep selling magazines. <laughs> because once you've arrived, do you need anything better? No. And the, thing, the truth of the matter is, you never fully arrive in this world, materially speaking. There's always something we can get that's better than what we have. Oh, we can see this again and again and again. This is so true. You know, when when we look to our neighbor's house or we look to our neighbor's yard or car or whatever, or when the, the next generation of iPhone comes out, the other one's suddenly no good anymore. Got to have the new one. Got to have the best. But the best doesn't stay the best for very long. And the Galatians, well, the Galatians were having this problem too. They had been given the best. Jesus. You know, how can you approve upon Jesus and his grace? And the answer to that is you can't. But they thought they could make it better. And why did they think they could make it better? They still had self on the throne. They still had self on the throne of their lives. But when we put Jesus in his proper place on the thrones of our lives, everything else has a tendency to fall into its proper place. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that everything will be smooth and easy. There will be trouble. What did Jesus call it? Tribulation. And he promised it. He said, in this world, you're going to have it. There's no other way about it. But take heart, because I have overcome the world, he said. And he also said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's a promise. And we can count on those promises. Paul continues in verse 5. Is that verse 5 I'm having a hard time seeing back there? Okay, I think I'm, ad- I'm advancing it when I'm not supposed to. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Righteousness is coming, but it won't be uh, as a result of anything that anyone, any of us, can do or is doing. It will be the result of the love that God has for us. His love and our acceptance of that love, faith believing, assures us that God accepts us now and will accept us on the day of judgment because, and only because, of what Christ has done for us. There is nothing that we can do to earn it, nothing that we can do to attain it. And then verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The very essence of religion cannot be limited to a law or a right or a practice. It is a personal relationship with none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. The Galatians' basic fault was that they had assumed that there was something that they could do to earn that favor in the eyes of God. The law, after all, makes salvation dependent on human achievement, it's the way of comparison, it is the way of competition. When we're governed by the law, we spend more time looking over our shoulder than we do at looking at Jesus. And when we look over our shoulder, what are we looking at? We're looking to see if our neighbor is gaining on us. Or we're looking over to see what they're doing. Or maybe we're looking over our shoulder to see if there's somebody coming after us (laughs) because we've made some mistake, something that we've done wrong. And this is where Paul makes it very simple. Only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. That is our calling, brothers and sisters. Paul takes the whole gospel and he distills it into these four, excuse me, five words, these few words, five words. Only faith working through love. You know, I thought about these these words Over the last couple of weeks. Do you know what I see in these five words? In the word faith, I see the word up. Faith is our belief in God, right? Belief in God. It's the way that we connect with him. Working, that's what the church is supposed to be. You know, for for too many of us, church is passive. It's not supposed to be passive. It's supposed to be active. We're to be working out. We're to be expressing our faith within the body, with each other. And that's where I see in. And finally, through love. Certainly through love is how we're supposed to be treating each other, as I mentioned in the children's sermon, how we're supposed to be treating each other within the body. But it's also, Paul says, how we're supposed to be treating everybody. And what do I see in through love? Out. Out. That's PFC's mission, up, in, and out, in five words here, five words. And, and you know, really, the, this whole idea of only faith working through love, that whole thing is up, that, that's worship. That whole thing is worship. That's how we should be living our lives. Um, you know, where does that love come from? God is the author of it, and so we're returning a part of that. We're serving God by serving others and by loving others. That's how we love God. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, Jesus said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have your theology down pat. If you know your Bible in and out if you go to church every Sunday and every time the doors are open. No, he didn't say any of that. (laughs) If you love one another. That's how the world is going to know that we are Jesus' disciples. Okay, so we've covered six verses. Not to worry. I really didn't mean an hour and a half when I said that. I want to basically read verses 7 through 15. And I'll provide a little bit of commentary here and there. Uh, But these verses pretty much speak for themselves. And, And as I read them, I want you to listen to them with the context that we've just talked about. Think about the context that we've just talked about. Remember that the members of the Galatian churches were sniping at each other. They were being critical of one another. They were making comparisons about who was doing Christianity right and who wasn't. Making judgments. And an air of self-righteousness was also creeping in, which is always the case when you live by the law. Why? Because the law is legalistic. That's what happens. It's natural. And note that Paul lays it on the line. He does not get mince words here. He gets pretty sarcastic, as a matter of fact. He sounds pretty exasperated. It should become evident. All right, let's look at 7 through 12. You were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? I like the NIV just a little bit better here. It says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? (laughs) Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? The Galatians had a solid start, but they had allowed this false teaching to get a foothold. Then he says in verse 8, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven, a little yeast, leavens the whole lump. Leaven was almost always regarded as a a negative thing, an evil influence. And and what Paul is saying is, is really a warning. He says that this legalistic movement that has started here in your churches you know, it's just taken a foothold, but don't let it continue. Get rid of it. Eradicate it. Wipe it out now before it spreads any further and contaminates the whole whole thing. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul knew who it was. I'm sure he did. He always did his homework. I think he said that a little sarcastically. That's what I think. (laughs) Verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. You know, of course Paul wasn't preaching circumcision. And he's saying this kind of rhetorically. He's making the point that he's not preaching it. And the proof that he's not preaching it is that he's still being persecuted. He is being persecuted. And this goes back to Paul's argument that if you want the law, you have to follow the whole law. The sacrificial and atoning death of Jesus on the cross wouldn't be a part of that law. And then he says in verse 10, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. (laughs) Boom. Wow. I bet that got their attention. Can you imagine reading this letter and coming to that line? You want circumcision? <laughs> Woo! But you know, it, they would have related to this, believe it or not. I mean, Galatia was near Phrygia. And in Phrygia, they worshiped Cybele. And the priests of Cybele would castrate themselves. They were eunuchs. And some of the devout believers would, too. So Paul's saying, you want it, go for it, you know? (laughs) He was not exactly being politically correct. Can we say that? But he got their attention and he made his point. It certainly would have hit a responsive chord with them. And, And then Paul brings it home. Paul talked about theology. He could talk theology with the best of them. But to Paul, theology was worthless. If it didn't translate into practical application, how could it be lived? And you will see this in every one of his letters. He talks about theology, but he hits the end with practical application. Uh, Vincent Taylor, a Methodist author and theologian, once said, The test of a good theologian is can he write a tract? You know the little booklets? Can he write one of those? All right, I want to read verses 13, 14, and 15, but before I do, you have to understand one Greek word, and it's the word for flesh, sarks. Whenever we see the word flesh in Paul's writing, we have a tendency to think of sexual sins, and that was not the case. Sarks really refers to more than that. It refers to the sinful state of human beings, the sinful state of us being in the flesh. And that would be everything. All human sin. So remember that. All right, look at verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't allow the sin nature to creep into your life just because you have freedom, Paul is saying. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. There it is. One word, one message from Paul. And who did he get it from? He got that from Jesus. Could you imagine how different churches would be if they followed that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, really followed it. Can you imagine how much different our church would be if we followed that 100%? Can you imagine how different our world would be if all Christians truly lived that? Loving our neighbor as ourself. You see, that's what freedom is. If we were to take the way of grace... It is first necessary for us to cast our sin upon the mercy and the love of God. It is then that we are freed from the law and from our sin. Those sins that would burden us. Those sins that would weigh us down. And we are freed to love each other. To serve each other. There's nothing about dotting I's and crossing T's. There is nothing about what happens if you just happen to cross an I and dot a T. There's no comparison. There's no competition. There's no hierarchy. There are no haves and have-nots. Only a whole bunch of people who are looking out for each other. That's what the church is supposed to be. Desiring good things for one another. You know, that's what shalom means. I don't know if you can see it. The cross on the right arm is the word shalom. And you can't see it when you're looking at the cross, but you can see it on the shadow. Can you see the word shalom there? It means, it doesn't mean peace. It means, I wish for you every good thing. That's what it means to have freedom, to live that way, to live our lives so that we can communicate that. To everyone, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and everybody that we come into contact with. There is no day that should go by that we don't show love, God's love for one another. No day. Now, think about this past week. Did you show love to all of the neighbors? with whom you came into contact, rather than comparing ourselves to others, rather than focusing on what others have and what we don't have, and this can even involve spiritual gifts, rather than keeping up with the Joneses, we should just love them. Amen? Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. We don't get it. We don't understand it. But you love us so much so that you even give us freedom, freedom from our sins, that worst part of us. Thank you that you also make available to us freedom from ourselves and our misguided, misdirected, selfish ideas and ambitions. Father, help us. Help us to focus on Christ and Christ alone, in whose name we pray. And now may the God, our Heavenly Father, prepare and equip you for every good thing. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Depart in peace.